This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. In the 1952 film High Noon, Gary Cooper plays Marshall Will Kane. And basically, the bad guys are coming back and Will's got to make a decision. Should he leave town like everyone else? Or should he stay and uphold law and order? Oh, Will. Well, I'm begging you, please, let's go. I can't. Don't try to be a hero. You don't have to be a hero, not for me. I'm not trying to be a hero. If you think I like this, you're crazy. I've got to stay. It's maybe the clearest example of what we call the reluctant hero. An unquestionably good, upright, moral individual. A man, usually, thanks Hollywood, who sticks around to solve the problem of evil. Who's duty-bound to put his life on the line and have some big showdown. There's a problem with this story, though. This is almost never how things work in real life. Actual justice rarely culminates in some kind of good guy versus bad guy standoff. But hey, it's a great story, isn't it? We talk about a lot of things on this show, but we often come back to the power of stories and how this power relates to our social and political dysfunction. Usually, we're having these conversations with scholars or public intellectual types. But what about artists making work that tries to capture the problems of our present moment? I'm Sean Ling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Noah Hawley. He's a TV and film director and showrunner, and he's the creator of one of my favorite TV shows, Fargo, the anthology drama loosely based on the 1996 Coen Brothers film. He's also a novelist, and his newest book, Anthem, came out last year to critical acclaim. But Holly got my attention because of a recent piece he wrote for The Atlantic called It's High Noon in America. Holly argues that these Old West myths like the reluctant hero, are still very powerful in American life. And all the lawlessness and violence they glorify, that stuff seeps into our culture, which is why he thinks we can learn a lot 
by looking at what stories are most popular. I feel like this line between politics and culture has really become so gray, you know, that everything is politics now, that it becomes a psychological issue for us where we can't really separate anymore what is our day-to-day -day life from the politics around us. Because I want to tell stories for everyone. I live in the middle of the country. I grew up in New York City. I've worked in Los Angeles. I've lived in San Francisco. I think there's value to living in the middle of the country. But, you know, it gets harder and harder to reach everyone. You kind of have to choose your platform, and those platforms have become self-sorting in a way. Yeah. But the other thing is it's very hard to tell stories that don't suddenly feel political, so whether you watch Yellowstone or whether you watch Fargo, it feels like looking at the world in two different ways. Well, speaking of stories, there is a lot going on in your new novel, Anthem. Is that your, your sixth or your fifth? Sixth. Okay. You know, I think we both love Kurt Vonnegut, especially Slaughterhouse-Five. And this book of yours, like Slaughterhouse-Five, really does kind of feel like someone trying to wrestle with a broken world or trying to wrestle with a broken moral order, if that makes any sense. I mean, is that even close to how you think of it? Or am I just an idiot? No, I think you're not an idiot. I think you're right on it. Sweet. You know, to tell a story that tries to look at the world that we live in right now, right? How do you write about the world that we live in, especially in these last four years, in a way that's going to even be relevant in that moment? Yeah. But I did feel it was important to put myself in the book for the first time as sort of narrator, because I'm trying to think about the issues we're wrestling with in this world. And I think it's important to be a character in my own story to address that, to say, look, I'm worried, you're worried, let me try to create a fictional story of our world to see if I got it right. And so the challenge of finding a model for that brought me to Vonnegut and to Slaughterhouse-Five. You know, his story of his World War II experience, fictionalized, in which it's a story about a man who has come unstuck in time. It's a cross-genre book. It should not work. When you look at all the elements of it on paper, it should not work, but it does very much. Yeah, I mean, even the your decision to sort of break the fourth wall and kind of like talk directly to the reader felt like you saying, I've got some shit that I want to say, and I'm just going to say it. <laughs> right, but I made a very deliberate choice never to use the word Democrat or Republican right. to try to simply describe things the way that I saw them without the names for them. So there's a lot of descriptions of one political party versus another political party. It's the swimmers versus the surfers, or it's the restaurant versus the bar, you know, in which the restaurant is the party where come in everyone and we'll feed you and there's a seat for everyone. But at the same time, we also feel like you should be paying the bills for the people who can't afford to eat there versus the bar, which is now a sports bar, which is you're on our team or you're not on our team. Yeah. In a kind of literate, onomatopoetic sense of like, well, what is the thing really without the name? You know, we're both parents. I mean, I have one son who's only three and a half. How many, do you have two? I have two, yeah. I have a daughter who's 15 and a son who's 10. Okay, you know, a big part of this story you're telling is told from the perspective of teenagers. Why was that important, given what you were 
trying to do in the book? Well, I think there's a really interesting challenge that we're facing right now, which is how do you prepare your children to live in a world in which reality itself is up for debate? It's not something you and I had to learn when we went out into the world or our parents' generation or any other American generation before, really. But we are at this moment where which reality you believe in depends very much on which political party you're associated with. And so how do I raise a son or a daughter and send them out into the world? How do they navigate that problem of what's real and what's not real? And so I wanted in the story to take these late teens, early teens, to send them out into this world, having left an anxiety center, a kind of private psych hospital for teenagers to go out and try to go on a quest, really, because the structure of the book became very rooted in a fantasy novel. It was an adventure novel, and that allowed me to say that the fantasy world that they're exploring is ours. It's either a, a fantasy novel about the real world we live in or a real novel about the fantasy world we live in. Yeah, I love that line. But it is such a rich vein to tap. This question of like what it feels like to be a young person in a very anxious world that feels like it is blowing apart, where it feels like, you know, the old people have mucked it up yet again. And maybe it's always feels like that, but it, it really does feel like that now. I think that climate change has really escalated this, you know, climate change combined with the fact that everyone in charge of our government is over 70. I have this feeling like every Fortune 500 board of directors should have at least one 12-year-old on it right now. We need to be moving toward this handoff to the next generation a lot faster than we normally do, because that's who's going to be living with the problems that we've made. That line about it being either a fantasy novel about the real world we live in and somehow a realistic novel about the fantasy world we live in. I mean, beyond just being a, a hell of a line, how can it be both of those things at the same time? I think it is, but it's strange. It is strange. I think that there is on some level a sense of reality shock that occurred in 2016 that we have not really recovered from. If you think back to the Pizzagate moment where this man went into a pizza restaurant in D.C. and shot it up. He's looking for the dungeon where the Democrats are keeping the children. And there is no dungeon. And he's arrested. And what is that moment for somebody to realize that you've literally put yourself into prison chasing a reality that doesn't exist. That's a fantasy. And to make it stranger, right, what happens immediately the next day is that Alex Jones gets on the radio and says that this man is a false flag actor. He's part of the fantasy, right? right? So if you're that guy in prison, suddenly you're part of the fantasy, not part of the reality anymore. These are very strange moments. And, you know, I explored it a bit in the third year of Fargo, this idea that there's violence to realizing that the world you're living in isn't what you thought it was. There's this mental trauma that people suffer from. And I think we're still trying to find our way back to where we were before, but I don't think there is a before anymore. We just have to figure out what's on the other side of it. Do you think we need new stories? Well, I think what's interesting is we have to figure out how to talk to each other, how to tell stories that resonate with people despite the opinions they hold 
we're ending up in a world where the only stories that really resonate with people are the unchallenging stories. There's a reason that Avatar is successful or, or, or Marvel movies are successful. Those old brands can bypass this current quagmire that we're in. But I do feel like, and I wrote about this in The Atlantic, we're sort of hostage now to these American myths in our entertainment without even really realizing it. The myth of the reluctant hero or, you know, the myth of frontier justice, all of these ideas that have come back in terms of the way that both sides are really seeing the world. All the energy that Democrats are spending trying to understand the Republican mindset and the conspiratorial mindset, et cetera, is not being reciprocated on the other side. You are not seeing a lot of analysis on Fox News or in conservative publications about why Democrats believe what they believe, what is the underlying basis. They're not doing socioeconomic studies to try to understand the mindset of economically challenged white voters, et cetera, right? It's a very uneven balance. One side is really trying to understand where the other side is coming from. And then the other side is just projecting onto the first side. So it is very strange because we obviously, we want to understand. My job as a fiction writer and a creator of characters, all I'm doing is trying to recreate the world I live in to see if I can understand it. And so it does become fascinating to see that there are people who are burning thousands of hours of their lives trying to understand where people who don't agree with them are coming from and then a whole other segment of the population that could, on some level, care less. In that piece, you described Fargo. And it was so interesting to read that piece as someone who I've watched all the, the seasons of Fargo and I have lots of thoughts about it. It's one of my favorite shows ever. But you describe it as a tragedy based on an inability to communicate and said that that is actually also a good way to describe the current American predicament. And now I'm quoting you, right? You say we have two sides that both feel aggrieved. Each believes that their own pain is real and that the other's is a fantasy. I mean, is that another way of saying that both sides are trapped in misleading stories about each other? Well, I think it's very important to understand that we're not talking about villains here. We're talking about people and that people find their way to beliefs and a way of looking at life in the same way. They just don't always end up in the same place. If you think about the movie Fargo, Bill Macy, Jerry Lundegaard, this whole thing could have been avoided if he had just said, I fucked up and I had my wife kidnapped and I made a huge mistake, but he can't admit the truth out loud. And in fact, he can't even admit it to himself. And so much of Fargo is about the state of denial that characters are in, in which they can't admit what they've done or what is happening. And so much death and destruction comes out of that inability to communicate. And so that's the tragedy of it, right? Tragedy being a bad ending that was avoidable if different choices had been made. That's funny. I always think of tragedy as just like a collision of terrible options where resolution is simply not in the cards. Right. I see it differently. I see, I see the path to not tragedy is very clear and you just choose to go in the tragic direction. Why does Noah Hawley think that it's high noon 
in America? That's what I'll ask him after a quick break. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. In that Atlantic piece, you know, you're writing about a very particular species of violence animated by a very American way of thinking. What do you mean when you say that it's high noon in America? Well, this idea of high noon is a myth. Right. That the way the world actually works is rarely is it white hat versus black hat in the town square at noon. The reality of life as in Fargo is that it's a lot of elements on a collision course and you never know which ones are going to collide and when. But we're searching always for high noon because we've been trained to feel like that's the most satisfying resolution, right? Not just that the guy with the white hat is going to face the guy with the black hat, but that one of them is going to kill the other one. That is the most satisfying version of a story for a lot of people. Why do you think we love that so much here? Why do you think we love that reluctant hero myth, right? This idea that like there's this good man just trying to live his life in solitude and peace and he is forced by dint of circumstances to like rise up and take down this villain or this evil or whatever. What is it about that that appeals so deeply to us? I think it allows our heroes to be good people, even though they might end up doing something that is immoral at the end of the day. I talked very much when I sold the idea of making Fargo that it was about the people that we yearn to be decent and kind versus the people we fear the most. Yeah. But that it's like the myth of World War II where all these peaceful men put down their plowshares and picked up rifles to go to fight Hitler. And then when they came back, they melted their rifles and they picked up their plowshares and all they wanted was to go back to being peaceful men, right? I think there's a very romantic sense of that. I think it gets confusing, this idea. And we flirted with it in the late 90s and the early 2000s, all the anti-heroes that flooded our TV screens and our films, you know, the reluctant demon hunters who are out there. And they couldn't be happy. They had to be tortured so that we could sleep at night. And, you know, I think there was something very meaningful about that transformatively in our culture that really played into a romantic sense that you feel on the right, which is like, this is the world. The world is the zombie apocalypse. The world is this ugly place where your neighbor would just as likely kill you as help you. So we have to be armed. We have to be ready. And do you ever wonder why they put Donald Trump's head on Rambo's body? Like, why Rambo? Except that he was just this... Vietnam vet who had come back and he just wanted to settle back in and live a life, but the cops hassled him and they wouldn't leave him alone. And so he ended up having to destroy the system that was persecuting him. 
I mean, I'm vaguely aware of these sort of cultural myths and how they appear in various stories, but the way you connect them with the current pop culture is very interesting to me. You know, I hadn't heard anyone or read anyone until I read your piece draw this comparison between The Walking Dead and Game of Thrones, two shows that I have watched. And you point out how these two shows are not just different, they offer different and really competing visions of human nature and political virtue. Can you say a bit about that distinction? Because it is quite useful. Yeah, I mean, that what I noticed about zombie movies is that the real enemy is always other people. The zombies are just a backdrop against which society breaks down. And when you watch The Walking Dead, you have your core of heroes, and some of them are traitors and will ultimately betray you. But then it's always about running into that other group of people. And those other group of people have either decided that they have to control you or destroy you or use you as bait, et cetera, et cetera. The zombie apocalypse films are rarely a kumbaya story of humanity coming together to fight this larger evil, right? And Game of Thrones flirted with this idea, right, that everything was politics and, you know, everyone was competing for the throne and it was a zero-sum game. But then in the end, when they saw the zombies, they were like, okay, we can put aside our differences and go and face this threat. And where these two shows were popular in America, I think the New York Times mapped it out, and it lines up with very different segments of our population. The Walking Dead is, has been historically been very popular in the South and in more rural areas, and Game of Thrones is a more coastal elitist show for people to watch. And some of that, of course, is that HBO costs money. And AMC didn't cost money, but I think some of it is also, it's just a worldview. I've never thought of The Walking Dead as a conservative show. Not conservative in the sense of Republican. I mean, conservative in the sense that it's anchored in a worldview that basically just says, when the veneer of civilization slips away, your neighbor will absolutely kill you for a can of tuna or a gallon of gas, whatever it is. Right. Part of me is drawn to that. Part of me thinks it's true on some level. And part of me is repelled by it. I mean, I, I remember post-Katrina in New Orleans. I, I was there. It was wild stuff and people were desperate, which is why part of me agrees with the Joker in The Dark Knight, you know, when he says, when the chips are down, people will eat each other. But it's clearly not the whole story of humanity. And I guess the problem is that if you obsess over that, or if you obsess over the worst parts of us, that's a really good way to bring about the worst parts of us. Does that make any sense? Right. Well, and I think that that's true for most people. Most people are not in this camp of believing that your fellow man will turn on you at the drop of a dime. I think what gets troublesome is when the attraction of that myth gets tied up with a political worldview and tied to a larger political party that has a lot of moderation built into it. I mean, this idea of being a conservative was usually based on an idea of moderation. But now as the party is taken over by more radical elements, this worldview begins to seep into the more conservative, the more moderate elements until this dog-eat-dog worldview becomes on some level the only platform of the party. Do you think if you had those two shows, Walking Dead and Game of Thrones, 
But if you had these two competing shows in parallel 10 years ago, do you think the popularity would have kind of mapped that neatly onto our partisan divisions? Or do you think that really is a function of just where we're at right now in this moment? Well, you know, they're not polar opposite shows. Yeah. If you remember, Game of Thrones had a real gender violence problem. And it was, on on many levels, a very male fantasy of how power works in the world. So on some levels, the two shows kind of overlap in certain areas. But it's just in the way they resolved, right? Which was in a Game of Thrones, they decided that stronger together. They adopted a kind of liberal myth of a rising tide lifts all boats. I think on some level, these myths have always been more loaded than just entertainment. But I think they used to be more entertainment than staking a position. You know, the popularity of Yellowstone right now as a kind of team jersey of who's watching it and who's not watching it and what it means to people. In terms of Yellowstone, the idea that this man, this rancher who owns hundreds of thousands of acres is the best steward of the land. The native tribe wants the land back, but even they have to admit that John Dutton is the best steward of this land. And in the show, this Dutton family will literally kill anyone who challenges their ownership of the land. And that's a heroic quality as presented on the show, you know? And it's a very different way of looking at the world than a lot of other shows present. And how does a show like Fargo sort of slot into these mythical boxes or in some ways float above it? You know, I always thought it always felt like a very dark, very existentialist show that is actually full of commentary if you're listening, but it never seemed to be celebrating anything in the way that some of these other shows are glorifying some of these things in the way these other shows we're talking about do. Well, I mean, the lessons that I took from the movie Fargo and from Joel and Ethan's work is that violence should never be entertainment. Mm. When you think about the violence in the movie Fargo, it's always really shocking. It happens quickly. It's very graphic. The state trooper gets shot in the head and the amount of blood that comes out leaves the viewer, like Steve Buscemi, going, whoa, daddy. So what's interesting to me always is we're so trained to want High Noon. We're so trained to feel like violence is story and action and resolves things. And I always like to walk viewers up to a line and then there's a certain moment in which you go, oh, I don't like this. I wanted this, but now it's here and I don't want it. You know what I mean? And for me, there's never really a white hat versus black hat moment on the show. And that's why I love it, I think, because it blurs the lines in those ways. And we love the idea of the good guy and the bad guy. And we love the idea tangentially of the vigilante, right? That's why we love Batman. And we love the idea that some things are so bad, it requires the reluctant hero to step outside the law, to step outside the norms and do what has to be done in the name of preserving freedom or liberty or whatever. Well, for me, the show was always the story of decency versus evil. Not good versus evil, but decency, basic decency. Yeah. The idea that when left to their own devices, most Americans, they just want their family to be okay. They just want to do the right thing. And then sometimes 
forces will rise up that are a true threat and have to be dealt with. But one never takes joy in it, and it's never easy. And the hope, like at the end of the film, is that when Marge has seen the most, the worst case she'll ever see, and she's got two months till the baby's born, and her husband got the three-cent stamp, and tomorrow is going to be just another day, and that's her reward. We want to go back to safety and security, and the challenge that I'm exploring in this next season, right, is this idea of Minnesota nice, which is the sort of comic underpinnings of Fargo, right, which is is polite society, places in which people are so, in the sort of Lutheran way, they don't want to offend anyone, they won't say something out loud that might offend anyone, and you end up with a very passive-aggressive civilization. But then you look at the school board meetings right now, and there's nothing passive uh, about it, right? So once the Minnesota nice goes away, what's left in Minnesota? And yet, at the end of the day, people just care about their kids, right? And whether they've come to believe that vaccines are evil or teaching kids about racism is harming their children, at the end of the day, it's not that they're evil people. They just care about their kids, and this is the way they think they can protect their kids. Lots of people have always believed lots of ridiculous things like Pizzagate. But the internet is such a game changer in terms of our ability to curate our reality. And maybe in some bizarre way, it has amplified the power of these stories about frontier justice or civilizational threats and made them more ridiculous in the process. I mean, (laughs) even our coups now are mostly just idiots live streaming their cosplay adventures. But that fact almost makes it more worrisome because it speaks to this inexorable journey from fantasizing about violence to doing violence and how that line is very weirdly blurred at the moment. Well, you know, I make a point in the book to say that the book is not satire. Satire used to be a very effective way to police bad behavior in our society because you would mock someone who was doing wrong and they would feel shame. But we live in this inverted reality moment in which the things that people used to feel ashamed about, they're now very proud of. And so we've reached this moment of absurdity in terms of members of Congress, for example, who are under investigation for trafficking minors across state lines, who are standing at a platform talking about the moral high ground. And it used to be that you could shame people like that, but they don't feel shame anymore. I started thinking in the third year of Fargo about this idea that irony without humor is just violence. If you think about Kafka, right, a man is put on trial for a crime that he will never know what they're accusing him of. And it's absurd, but it's not funny. And so what it is, is just violent. It does violence to your mind to try to resolve that. We've hit that moment in which... You know, there's always a moment in Fargo where the worst person in the show says, I'm the victim here. And then that has now become a reality where you hear a lot of men claiming to be victims in our society who have been victimized in no way, who still have all the power and the ability to dictate the conversation. And yet they could not be screaming louder about their own victimization. This question of men, I'm glad you went there. You take it on in the piece. 
there's just no question that something that is happening right now is that young men in particular are being radicalized, as you put it, by the closed information loop of Internet America. This is something I think a lot about, and, and you wrote something that really captured my attention. And I'll just quote you. You say, this is how it is with a certain type of American male. They start with Nietzsche, they end with carnage. I'll just ask you what you meant by that, and, and we can riff on it a little bit. Well, you know, someone once said, it's hard to be useful and sad. Hmm. Like that act of helping others, when you look at a society and, and what actually makes people feel good about themselves, it's not helping themselves, it's helping other people. But I think we're always struggling with what our young people can be doing. You know, in different regions of the world, the less that young men specifically have to occupy themselves, the more trouble they get into. Yep. And I went to the dermatologist the other day and, you know, I told him that I'd started taking testosterone because my testosterone was low. And he was like, oh, do you listen to Joe Rogan? <laughs> Because apparently Joe is just telling every man in his 20s to take testosterone, which is not what young men need, more testosterone. Good Lord. But the problem is that if you don't have enough to do with yourself and a sense of purpose, then you get into trouble because this is the age, you know, in people in their 20s, this is when you're most passionate right? Yeah. That's why we had the civil rights movement and the 60s, the youth culture revolt, etc. you know? And then in the late 90s, we had the dot-com revolution. You know, it was something for young people to get really passionate about. And there's just been this really fascinating inversion of passion and co-option of language of what used to be the left by the right in terms of my body, my choice, which is now about vaccines. And, you know, in Russia, they had free and fair elections. And a free and fair election in the Soviet Union was you show up, they hand you a ballot that's already been filled out, and you put it in the box, and you have voted. And they call that a free and fair election. And part of why they called it that is so that when you tried to have a revolution and change it, what were you going to call it? The name had already been co-opted. The words we had to say free and fair meant the exact opposite. So what words could you use, you know? Yeah. And so that's where we get back to this irony without humor is just violence, right? It boggles the mind. It, it shuts the mind down on some level, which I think is the point. It's a really bad idea to read Nietzsche if you're drunk on this cocktail of delusion and resentment. Because, you know, it's not an accident that he is so appealing to young men in particular, right? I mean, he's subversive and brilliant and kind of punk rock. You read him and he tells you that all the pieties <laughs> that the masses swallow uncritically are just bullshit constructs and that most of what we call morality is really just an attempt to stifle the strong, creative individual. Right. And of course, he's very interesting, right? But the problem is that young men read him and think they're the powerful individual being restrained by society. And when you're young and impressionable, you long for that sense of mission and higher purpose. You want to float above the herd, to use his language. And Nietzsche speaks directly to those fantasies. And if the line between fantasy and reality is already blurred in your mind, that's a very dangerous place to be. You know, I remember talking to, to Chris McQuarrie, who is making the Mission Impossible movies. Yeah. Paramount, which is the studio, was saying, we need to get more young men watching these movies. And Chris was like, well, young men want John Wick. 
That's what young men want. So if that's the audience you want to get, then you have to really increase the graphicness of the violence and the intensity of the violence in these movies. And of course, that's not true for all young men. I was a young man once. You were a young man once. I wasn't John Wick crazy. But it is worth thinking about the fact that there is this testosterone of youth that wants confrontation, that wants violence. And sometimes it's, you know, the joy of intellectual combat as well. But there is an attraction to white hat versus black hat in the town square that as you get older and you realize that life is more complicated than that, maybe you're more open to stories that resolve less concretely. But if you're not occupied enough and you're looking for stories that give you big feelings, which is what you want as a young person, those are the stories that are working. One thing that's just so clear to me, young men are always going to be a challenge for society. They just will be. And it is a weird, awkward thing, figuring out what the hell it means to be a man or how to define your manhood. And young men in particular will always do incredibly stupid and dangerous things. But if our culture doesn't provide rites of passages or if it's dysfunctional, if we don't have healthy ways to express masculinity, if we don't have healthy models of masculinity, if we lack social infrastructure for young boys, uh, if we just don't have anything productive to do, we're going to have a big problem. And obviously the funhouse mirror that is the internet and the orgy of grievances that that unleashes, boy, that's uh, that makes things even worse. Well, you know, I, I came of age in the 70s in the height of second wave feminism. And my mother was a feminist writer in New York City in the 70s. And I was very aware when I reached sexual maturity that I had come of age both as a sexual person and as a potential sexual predator. Like that this was this was one version of what a man is, right? Is that there's always the potential for violence that women feel from men. And so as a man with a feminist mother, I had to be able to hold those two ideas at the same time, which was, I have to be careful with the power that I have and not abuse it. And I think the complexity of that is something that if you face it, makes you a richer person. But what we're seeing now is a large rejection of any culpability or potential culpability or even the idea of culpability, right? The idea that someone who is male is privileging from the very fact of their gender. And if you're not able to even entertain the notion of blame on yourself, then what you end up with is you have to fight harder and harder. I think we all thought when the internet was born that it would be a place in which everyone would feel comfortable saying their truths out loud. But what we realized was that there are a lot of people whose truths are very uncomfortable for the people who are used to being heard in our society. And so you had a lot of people who suddenly were like, well, I don't want to hear that. That makes me feel bad about myself. And we have to be able to feel bad about ourselves. It's okay. Like, I'm a grown-up. I can have that feeling. As Molly Ivins said once, it's like, I can disagree with people and not hate them because I'm an adult. We've got to take one last quick break. But when we come back, what new vision of justice are we going to see on the upcoming fifth season of Fargo?
Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? And the power of do-overs. The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or find it wherever you listen. I was very intrigued when you wrote in your piece that on the next season of Fargo, you're going to champion a different vision of justice, a more collective vision of justice, one that doesn't romanticize or lionize the reluctant hero. What's your thinking behind that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to try to tell stories right now that champion the system of justice, the idea of justice as a group effort in which We come together as society and we make laws and we enforce these laws and not this reluctant hero version, which I have done myself, knowingly or unknowingly. In three of the four seasons so far, I have had a police officer character who is at odds with his or her boss, where the system of justice is either corrupt or incompetent. And this reluctant hero is going to solve the case no matter what gets in their way, right? And it's a very romantic notion. And I think we appreciate the simplicity of it. There's a hero and they're going to do the right thing. But that's not really how our system works. Our justice system works like a case is brought and it's a cooperation between many facets of our law enforcement and prosecutors and judges and et cetera. And it doesn't work very well much of the time. But when it does work well, it is the best form of justice there is because it is not emotional. I think to tell a story in which the system of justice wins in the end, in this moment in which our system of justice is under such attack, in which 
There's literally now a congressional committee on the weaponization of the government, by which they mean investigating people who are believed to have committed crimes. Again, you know, free and fair elections and the corruption of language. I mean, for all of our conversations about our current attorney general and why doesn't he move faster, et cetera, and why is he so deliberate and is it a good thing or a bad thing, he believes in the system of justice and he's trying to make it work so that no one can complain, which of course is impossible because people are going to complain. But at the end of the day, if the system of justice checks every box and justice is done, then the outcome is defendable and history will reflect that. Does trying to tell a story like that right now feel like an attempt to conquer your own cynicism? Or is it coming from a place of genuine hopefulness? I don't know that your two options are cynicism or hopefulness. I mean, I I think all I'm trying to do is kind of hold the society that I was raised in to its principles. Hmm. And do I hope that in real life it will do that? Well, I'm telling a fictionalized story, so I would hope that in real life it would do it. In a fictionalized story, I can do it, but I also can't make it white hat, black hat. It has to be complicated because it is always complicated and it's still a tragedy, right? Even when it happens, it's still a tragedy because a crime was committed. Yeah, but even that piece, you know, it, it ends on a very somber, sobering note. You know, you're describing your your efforts to answer your son's question about what the hell are we going to do about all these mass shootings? And your answer isn't necessarily wrong, but it is bleak. <laughs> you know, and you just, you close it by saying, well, we're going to buy more guns. Yes. Well, what's interesting in this idea of frontier justice, which another name for is vigilante justice, that we've kind of are getting back to, and that's what on some level January 6th was about, which is the sense that nobody can really tell us what's right and what's wrong. We all know in our heart what is right and what is wrong. It's the emphasis on right and wrong versus legal and illegal. And if you believe that, you know, your morals, your beliefs are that the world is an inherently violent place, that you need weapons in order to protect yourself in this place, that the people who are telling you to disarm are fundamentally delusional about the way the world actually is, then at a certain point, this belief in frontier justice is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because you are on a collision course with the law. And so if the choice is either to be a criminal in this reality or to bring about frontier justice so that you are not a criminal, then the choice seems to be clear is like, I don't want to be a criminal in this world in which the sheep are telling me that there is no wolf. Then you might begin to believe that the sheep is actually the wolf and you have to defend yourself. And, you know, I say in the piece, it's like you have 40% of the country that believes the zombie apocalypse is already here, but the people they're aiming their guns at are the other 60% of society who are just trying to understand, like, well, what are you talking about? Like, we're all just here. We could all figure this out the way we have for the last couple hundred years of like, not everyone's happy all the time, but we figure out what the middle ground is. And apparently there's no middle ground left. I mean, not only that, there's just no shared reality left. I mean, even the disclaimer, you know, the beginning of Fargo, right? This is a true story is its own kind of deconstruction of the idea of 
of a true story, which hits especially uh, hard in this moment. What's fascinating to me is like all of the conversations I have with the legal department at MGM or at FX about what I can say and not say and show and not show and products licensed or not licensed. No one has ever said to me, you cannot say this is a true story because it's not a true story. Like they've never said that to me. And on some level, I guess it's because the movie said that. But it is crazy that we announced to the world that this made-up story is true, and no one argues. No one's trying to say that it's not. Do you think there are any unifying stories left in our culture? One of the most depressing realizations for me in the last several years was that it really does seem to me that nothing, quite literally nothing, including a -a once-in-a-century pandemic, there is nothing that can't immediately get subsumed by this ongoing culture war. And if that's the case, then I don't really know where to go Yeah, from there. And I don't really know what kind of stories we could tell that would resonate with the entire country because the country is inhabiting very different spheres. What I learned early on is that audiences react emotionally and instinctually to stories. And there's some very clear things that audiences want. They want relationships to work out. They want families to stay together. They want the good guy to win in the end. We love the idea of redemption. So none of those things have changed for us. I think what's interesting is this idea of what happened to Jesus, right? (laughs) Jesus used to be, turn the other cheek, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And now, for a large part of our society, Jesus is warrior Jesus. Jesus is kick-ass and take names Jesus. Jesus isn't forgiving anybody. And what's fascinating about that is what one has to do to continue to say that you believe in Jesus and what Jesus stood for. You have to change what Jesus stood for in order to do what you want to do if it's not turn the other cheek and forgive It's sort of been a fascinating to watch as a storyteller, this sense that there's a lot of people out there yelling about the threats to Christianity, but it feels like the definition has changed of what's being defended. And, you know, I believe as a storyteller that we live on a religious planet. By far, the majority of people on this earth believe in God in one form or another. And so if you're telling a story that doesn't have religion in it, you're not talking about people. Mm, yeah. But I do feel a little bit caught out that what they're praying for at the dinner table is still all the old do unto other, which sort of feels like out of step with the current moment. Yeah, I mean, it says a lot about how it's not the story so much that matter. It, it's when and where we're reading them, because we're always projecting. Right. If we're taking our Jesus a la carte, then what? why can't we take everything else that way? Well, it's, you know, if everything is in flux, then everything is in flux. Yeah. What are we steering by? What are we grounding ourselves with? I mean, I set out in writing Anthem, ended up writing a book about this moment in America because the question of like, well, wait a minute, what is that? Became so loud that it threatened to dwarf the story. Yeah. This has been a real treat. Noah, I really appreciate you doing it. Your new novel is terrific. And if anyone is listening who has not 
watched any of the Fargo seasons yet, I cannot recommend them highly enough. You should check them out. Noah Hawley, thanks for being here. Thank you. Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. Check out Noah Hawley's new novel, Anthem. And if you haven't seen Fargo, again, go check it out. It's unbelievable. And I recently learned that Hawley's going to be making a show based on the movie Alien. And that will almost certainly be awesome. So check that out as well. As always, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. We really do read all the notes, and it really is appreciated. And if you dug this episode, please share it with your friends. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. to do's, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.